Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Remote Real Estate Investor. My name is Emil Shore, and today I'm joined by... Tom Schneider. Michael Albaum. And we're going to be talking about a question we get a lot from new investors, especially if they're investing remotely, which is, how do I choose a market? So let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into the meat of this episode, I want to take a quick pause and actually thank one of the people who left us a review on Apple. And so this was JTMD. JTMD gave us a five-star review and said, my wife and I are early real estate investors living in Southern California. Given the high cost of living here, we plan to build our portfolio in other markets. This podcast is exactly what we were looking for. The hosts are knowledgeable to the point and open with their successes and struggles. I plan to binge this during quarantine. Thanks, JT. Really appreciate the support. All right, guys. So the first question I want to ask, which I think is probably on a lot of people's minds, which is a question I get from from people as well, is let's just start off by talking about the markets that all of us are invested in. And then we can kind of go into why did we choose those markets and the criteria for selecting those. So, Tom, why don't you kick us off? What markets are you currently invested in? Yeah. So I am in the Southeast in Atlanta, pretty heavily in Atlanta. I started there pretty early. I think that was the second metro that I invested in. And I just continued to add one there as it's performing. The other cities that I am in is Orlando, Florida, continuing that Southeast trend. We just had a really cool guest with Gary Beasley and John Burns, and he has this book where he's just super bullish on the Southeast. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. And the other market that I'm in is up in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, up in the Midwest. Nice. Michael, how about you? What markets are you currently in? So I'm in Southern California in Riverside County. That was where I first started, and we'll come back to that and how I ended up there. And then I'm up in Alaska in Ketchikan. (laughs) funny enough, of all places. And then out in St. Robert, Missouri, an Indiana market. And then I've been focusing really heavily last couple of years on Cincinnati, Ohio, and Covington, Kentucky. Okay. Let's get into that now. How did you break into Southern California to start? Why'd you start there? So it was a market that my family had actually owned property in for a number of years. My grandfather bought some land back in the day. And so that passed down to generations. So we had some real small stuff there. And we had a property manager that had become a good friend of ours who was also an agent. And so I said, hey, I want to get involved in real estate investing. And she says, great, come on down. I can show you how to do it. So I said, okay. So I grew up kind of going to that market as a kid, just looking at the property and stuff with my dad. So I knew the area just by name and location only, not by any metric measure of the word. And so I said, well, yeah, this makes sense. This sounds good because I had no idea what I was doing. And so that's how I ended up in those markets initially. But Emil, you didn't tell us what markets you're in. Oh yeah, forgot to list mine. So You're real shifty, uh, you know that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to avoid any questions about what I'm doing. So I started out, my first property was in Jacksonville, Florida. Second one, Indianapolis, then Memphis, and most recently, St. Louis. So I'm I'm all over the place as well. Nice, you're spread thin as butter. I don't know if that's an expression. (laughs) Yeah, something like we're going to probably talk about this later, but like the shotgun approach and, you know, is that wise versus selecting a couple key markets? But Tom, tell me about, you said Atlanta was your first market. 
Atlanta was my second market. My first market was Orlando, Florida. Okay. And how did you decide to invest in Orlando? So at the time, I was working for a company that was doing this at scale. It was a single family REIT. And I was basically kind of similar to what I do today is just piggybacking on what smarter people are doing and like where they're putting their money. I mean, there are good reasons to like that market just on the outset in that there's major population shifts moving there. It's a cheaper cost of living, no income tax. You're paying a little bit higher property taxes, but more or less like my selection there was just because, wow, there's a lot of smart money going into this city. I'm going to put my money there too. So just piggybacking off of other people was really the main modus operandi. I think there's so much to be said for that. A lot of people think I've got to pick the market for myself. And I always say, well, I don't consider myself a very smart person. And so if a bunch of other smart people like Amazon, you know, C-suites and a lot of these big corporations are going into these markets, my guess is they've probably done their homework and probably have access to better tools than I do. So I'm happy to ride their coattails. There's a friend of the show and one of the earlier employees at Roofstock, Zach Evanish, he follows Whole Foods. He looks at where Whole Foods is going and opening up markets. And just, <laughs> hey, you know, stand on top of other people. That's a great way to do it. They did a South Park episode about that. Wherever a Whole Foods opened, the community just immediately blows up and becomes this <laughs> really nice, this nice town. I mean, it's true. Like they're doing so much research and analysis on markets and like, why not just follow them? This is what their bread and butter is, is like analyzing which markets open. And so totally agree. Why not piggyback on smart people? Sports franchises is another good one that I think is an indication if a market has enough volume. But and people thinking about personally on what markets they want to invest in, there's this trade-off where you know we're talking about looking for these bigger markets. And one of the trade-offs that you're going to have in investing in a bigger market is you're oftentimes going to sacrifice some cash flow at a lower cap rate. Now, if I'm looking to just get as high a cap rate as possible, if I go to somewhere like more rural, that's going to give me a bigger cap rate. But there's going to be risks on the side of maybe not as much employment opportunity, not as much appreciation opportunity. But that's a constant trade-off that I'm thinking about. And for me, going to that bigger city that has a smaller cap rate is more in line with what my philosophy is with investing. Yeah. Emil, how did you land on your first market? So I was back and forth between Atlanta and Jacksonville. Like Tom, I've been reading a lot about the Southeast and a lot of investment money going there, especially from, from bigger companies. And so I just figured those were good markets. The appreciation had been really, really solid in Florida, especially like post great recession. And the cash flow was good there as well. And so I was just back and forth between Atlanta and Jacksonville. Plus, you know, I, I, I was looking for my first property on Roofstock. And so they had a lot of good inventory, not to make this an ad for Roofstock. I always feel like I'm doing ads for Roofstock, but <laughs> going back and forth between like Atlanta and Jacksonville. And I just found a property I liked in Jacksonville. So I wasn't like, I need a property in this one place. I was kind of between a couple of cities and, and found the opportunity I liked. Yeah. Okay. So as the insurance pessimist on the show, question for both you guys, how do you feel about Florida and hurricanes? Oh man, that insurance is, it hurts your cash flow, no doubt. Much higher insurance than you'll see in a lot of other places. Yeah. But I think the return and the way the market has performed, like it still makes a lot of sense. And a lot of people still do invest in Florida. Mm -hmm. But I was going to bring that point up in comparing Atlanta with Florida is, man, you have such a higher insurance cost when you're investing in some coastal town. I had initially I had some properties that I had purchased in Jacksonville, and I 
sold them within the last year or so, just in that insurance stomaching that bill that just seems to be going up every year. We talk about real estate, how awesome it is, how you have these fixed costs with regards to debt servicing. But insurance can be a little bit of a wild card, especially as we're seeing kind of increased storm issues and those insurance rates are increasing as well. Yeah. So did you guys actually carry flood insurance or the hurricane insurance was tied into your homeowner's policy? Me personally, I had it tied into my policy. Okay. I didn't have like a separate one. Uh, yeah. Separate flood insurance. Same for you, Tom? I didn't have a separate one either. And I knew that I needed to either get it because I didn't want to get caught out on an island of having flood issues and not being able to cover it and just owning a very expensive lot. Yeah. Very expensive. So that's part of the reason why I got out of the Jacksonville market. Now I'm still in my Orlando, Uh a little bit less of a flood risk and not necessarily in a flood zone. But yeah, that insurance is definitely part of the calculus. Yeah. So I'm curious to know what exact market factors or criteria you guys used previously and are using now to pick your markets. Give me the inside scoop, the secret sauce that Tom and Emil used to identify hot markets. Do you want to go first, Emil, or you want me to jump in? Go for it, man. I'll hop in second. So I think you should think about markets in levels. I think there's the, the macro level where you're looking at population shifts, you're looking at the economy. And then the next layer into that is getting into zip code level data, like school scores. It all works together. So you know, what I'll do is I'll find a market where that has a population in like the greater MSA of 750,000, maybe 500 to a million, somewhere in that range. I'm, I'm giving kind of a broad sweep, but basically not little rural areas. And then I'll start looking at the school scores. Like that's such a key piece for me. And a hack that I've talked about before as just setting a litmus test is if I can add up the elementary school, middle school, and high school, and it's equal to you know, 10, I might maybe dip down to nine or eight if it's a really great deal opportunity. But that's the way that I'm thinking about is that population and then getting into the next level of like school scores and rooftop neighborhood scores, a really good reference that I'll use as well. So if you've got a market, Tom, and let's say the population is a million, do you look at historical population facts and figures to see if that population is growing? Is it shrinking? And at what rate? A great thing about tools that aggregate have a bunch of that data built into it, like the neighborhood score, is I don't need to reinvent the wheel on Mm. that. I won't get too far into the weeds because, I mean, you could very quickly get yourself into paralysis by analysis and and making decisions off of information that, you know, may or may not. And while I know enough to feel like I can be dangerous, there's I would much rather stand on top of these metrics that are built out by data science teams such as like the Roofstock team and leverage what they have with regards to shifts in population, shifts in growth of the economy. But I want to understand some high level about what's going into the sausage factory of those scores. Mm -hmm. But I'll lean on other companies instead of me deciding like, oh, does this shift from 3% population drop, is that going to make a difference? Like I'll um, level up by looking at some already aggregated scores on that. Sure. Level up. I love that. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think I use the term level up correctly, and I'm known for doing that, but <laughs> run with it, own it. <laughs> I know a better way to say it, basically standing on somebody else's work. So kind yeah. of similar to our earlier discussion. Yeah. Emil, what about you? What's your secret sauce? So for me, the first place I like to start, very, very scientific, I will just start with Google and look for things like good cash flow markets or good real estate markets, things like that, right? There's a lot of journalists, a lot of people writing about different markets and 
they'll typically go do a lot of the research in terms of population growth and what companies are moving there. So I use that as like a starting point. And then maybe I'll narrow it down to like three of those, right? I like Tom's idea of it being major enough of a market where they have at least one major sports team. I think that's a really like solid criteria. You can go into tertiary markets and like Tom mentioned, probably get better cap rates, better cash on cash. But for me, I like knowing that the market is big enough where in case of recession or whatever, I'll probably still be okay. There's enough people there where our tenant pool will be big enough. Do you ever look at Wikipedia, like the city? I don't know. Wikipedia has never really been in my research. Is it yours or yours? It should. I mean, you know, I don't think it's, you know, the end all be all, but there's a lot of super interesting data in Wikipedia. Like they have the largest lawyers, they have population, they have all kinds of stuff. So, and it's on the internet, so it must be true. (laughs) But anyway, sorry to interrupt and break your flow, but Wikipedia for that high level research, I meant to mention that as well, but that's a cool resource. Go ahead, Emil. Sorry breaking your flow. No, that's, that's a good tip. And so, and that's a good point. The The internet is, you can't just read one of these articles of on like Forbes. It says, here's the top 10 best places to invest, right? Like I just use those as a starting point and then do some more research. So like next thing I'll go do is actually go look at the market, whether on Zillow, whether on Roofstock, but just try to get an idea of like, what are the metrics here? Like you'll start to see Price to rent is a really easy one, right? What are things selling for and what are they renting for? And that'll give me a baseline idea of, is this a cash flow market or is it appreciated a lot to the point where, eh, cash flow is probably not going to be amazing. Let me look at some of the other ones on my list. So that's the second thing I'll do. Another important criteria for me is, is it a landlord-friendly state? So all of us live in California. We know it's very, very heavily weighted towards the tenant, which is fine. But as an investor, I want to know that the laws are a little bit more in my favor. So I'll usually make sure that wherever I'm looking, is it a landlord-friendly state? And again, that's a simple Google search to identify those. I don't think I touched on population growth. So like, again, if I have a short list of two or three, you can go look up population growth or decay by all these markets want to make sure the city is growing and not people are, are leaving there as well. Those are the different factors I use to really hone in on a market. The last thing I'll probably do is maybe go out and interview a couple property managers or pe- like local people to see like, like you can have the best market, but if you can't build a good team there, it doesn't matter, at least in my opinion. So like, I think it's really important once you have a short list to start maybe making calls to property managers, maybe even go on bigger pockets, right? Like there's tons of good information about local level stuff on bigger pockets. Like let's say you're looking at Indianapolis, just look up like Indianapolis on bigger pockets, see what people have to say, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Cause there's a lot of vendors in there too. So try to look for people who are actually investors and in talking about things, but that's kind of, you know, it's not really scientific, but that's kind of my approach to choosing a market. That's great. Michael, how about yourself? It's similar to Emil. It's super not scientific. So when I first started investing, I would literally throw, close my eyes and throw darts at a map of the US and like turn on this sale and rent filters on Zillow and zoom out all the way. It makes sense that you invested in Alaska because it's the biggest <laughs> state. So throwing a dart, it makes sense that it's going <laughs> to, right. we, we need to get so, to the story of how you bought a rental property. That's insane. So. Statistically speaking, yeah, I, I should have hit Texas and Alaska. So I was literally just looking for where are things renting for about a thousand bucks and where are they selling for about a hundred grand. 
And I would just zoom in on those areas and see where there was a conglomerate of those properties. And then I would try to learn a little bit about that market. And if it was good enough, I said, okay, great, it's good enough. And so I found myself in a lot of these markets when I was first investing, traveling around the country. And so I'll give you a quick a quick story about the Alaska property. So I was working up in Alaska for like a month, a month straight. And so I had a lot of free time on my hands. And I hope my previous employer isn't listening to this. But so I spent <laughs> I spent a lot of time, you know, Googling and searching around. And I said, look, the rents here are really strong. The sale prices are very reasonable as that ratio goes. So I just picked up the phone and called a couple of realtors. And the first one that got back to me was this guy named Andy, who's a rock star property manager, Rockstar agent, he's who I still use to this day. And he goes, yeah, I can show you some properties. So we went around, looked at you know, 10, 12, 15 properties over a couple of days that I was up there and found one that made a lot of sense. And it was this triplex. And I've shared this with a lot of other people and looking at undervalued and value add and figuring out how to see things as they can be, what, the, what their potential is, not necessarily as they are today. And I saw some real value add opportunity in the fact that the rents were under market. There was a lot of maintenance issues that had already been addressed that were expected to have a very long lifespan. Mainly a metal roof had been installed and metal roofs, I mean, are 50 year lifespan plus. So I said, okay, this deal makes sense. So I bought it and I just said, this is awesome. I was really worried because the population in the town is really small, but I really try to get an understanding of, okay, what's going on in this town? What's driving this a town to just be here in the first place and what's causing it to grow. And unfortunately, it's a tourism-based town. Every Alaska cruise stops in Ketchikan, almost exclusively. And the city was actually expanding their super, I don't know what that's called, but for their mega cruise line berths, they were adding a bunch more because they were anticipating additional cruise liners to be there. So in the summertime, the job market swells, tons of people are up there working, fishing, but in the wintertime, there's still a decent population of people in this town. So I said, you know what? This makes sense. And from a vacancy standpoint, believe it or not, that's been my best property in my entire portfolio. And it's a, geographically and from a population standpoint, it's one of the smallest populations of any city I invest in. So it just, it, I think I got lucky. Uh, there was a little bit of homework that went in on the front end, but I mean, I could have just as easily have totally missed on this and, and gotten hosed, but it's worked out so far and, and knock on wood. But so- Getting back to how I would do my research is I would just look at, like you, Emil, look at Zillow. Now that I've gotten a little bit more focused in my investing and in my markets, now I'll Google the same things that you just mentioned, right? Population growth, job growth, what companies are moving there, what companies are moving away, are people moving there? What does it cost somebody to live there? Can people make a good salary and have a decent cost of living, whether renting or owning? Because I like markets that have a lot of owner occupants. That just helps boost the rental market as well because people want to live in those neighborhoods. And then also I'll go so far as to Google what the local government's doing. Are there any incentive programs? The market that I found myself in out in Northern Kentucky actually had a program where they were giving away money to developers and investors to rehab residential spaces. And so that was one of the big things, the big catalyst to drive me to that market and take on this big development project I have is the city is literally giving away money. And if they're giving away money to investors and developers, well, that's a really good sign for things to come. And the market was kind of in shambles the last couple of years prior, but really now has turned around and has started to really gentrify at a pretty rapid pace. And it's very apparent physically seeing the streets. I mean, we can see it almost block by block what's going on in that area. 
And so you can pretty well assume that if the local government is investing heavily in, in the market, that's a really great thing. Again, that's my opinion. But I think if people are putting money into a town, it has to come up at some point. And the fact that other investors are going in rehabbing properties, the city is putting money in, the state's putting money in, those are all three signs that say things are going to be headed in the right direction. And so to be able to buy into that path of progress, I think is a great thing to do. That's awesome. I mean, a couple of things that just hit me really quickly about that is Emil and I are talking about, oh, these big markets. But the truth is, there are a lot of different ways that you can be successful as an investor. You know, there's a lot of super successful in smaller markets. And just knowing the market that you're going into. The other big takeaway is taking a step forward is the best way to really expedite that process of understanding and learning and knowing with action. Sorry, that's just, I love hearing your story. I've heard it several times. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, so I, I went to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and their big whole motto is learn by doing. And so that was definitely the approach I took with my investing. I was like, you know what? There's no better way, just like you said, Tom, to learn a market than to be in it, live it, breathe it, talk to the people that are there. And of course, you can do that from the surface level before you make an investment. But after you're invested in something, you're invested. I mean, you're going to take it a whole lot more seriously. And there's a lot more, I think, action items and takeaways that you have when you've got skin in the game. Totally. Okay. So let's say we've given people some tips on how do you actually go about choosing a market? Let's say you've identified a market now. One thing I wanted to point out is not everywhere within the market is created equal, right? You could land on a market, but then you have to drill down and say, these are the areas I want to invest in. And these are the areas I should avoid within that market, right? What are the submarkets I like? What are the ones I don't like? So curious to hear how you guys go about learning that market once you choose it. What are the areas to invest in versus the ones to avoid? Tom, do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So there's qualitative, which is talking to people. Oftentimes, people who work in the space love to talk about it. So talking to local property managers, talking to you know investors, talking to folks, getting that kind of qualitative taste. And oftentimes, what you'll find is people will bucket neighborhoods within a market and either, oh, this is more of a blue collar, perhaps even some public housing stuff, or this is a, an up and coming area, or this is, oh, more of an appreciation play of people just you know, anecdotally having that qualitative feedback. And then there's the quantitative side. And that's where I jumped the gun a little bit earlier in talking about markets, talking about school scores. That's just such a great indicator of what is the, you know, perceived met vacancy, perceived potential around rent growth. So I would think about both of those as really important aspects, both the quantitative looking at school scores, looking at neighborhood score from Roofstock and versus the qualitative. And you know, if I had to pick one, I would be, I don't know, it's hard to pick one, but either qualitative or quantitative. I mean, they play together. Yeah, very good point. Michael, how about you? I think to echo Tom's point, just talking to people and getting those proverbial boots on the ground and whether you physically go there, which I ended up in a lot of these markets when I was investing so I could talk with people face to face and actually walk the markets and kind of get a flavor for them. I talk a lot in the academy about you can't unsee an unexperienced the things that you see and experience if you go physically to a market for better or for worse. So if you get tainted and think, wow, I would never live here because it maybe is a B or C class neighborhood, but it still makes sense as an investment, it might be a lot harder for you to pull the trigger on that investment because of your personal bias. So for better or for worse, that's how I ended up in a lot of these markets. But now that I'm investing exclusively at a distance, I don't go to the markets physically. I have after I've made the investment and oftentimes to deal with insurance claims as 
we've talked about on prior episodes, but I pulled the trigger on some of these investments prior to ever being there and just talking to as many people as you can. And I try to live my life by this motto that says trust, but verify. So if someone's telling me something, I'll trust it, but I'm going to go verify that independently. And that's calling four or five different property managers, calling four or five different agents. And as soon as I start hearing the same thing over and over again, well, I can pretty much accept that as fact versus if I get conflicting information, well, now I've got to go spend additional time, energy, and effort to validate, okay, well, who's right, who's wrong, or is it something in between? And you know, cold calling people just randomly, hey, I'm an out-of-state investor looking at this property. What do you think? Oh, yeah, I know that property, especially in a lot of these smaller sub-markets. I mean, people talk. And people know people. And if they don't know about it, they might know somebody who worked on that property. And you might get lucky. You know, you might not. That might be a total shot in the dark, but it doesn't hurt to ask. And you never know unless you ask. So ask the stupid questions, feel silly, embarrass yourself, um, but just talk to as many people as you can. Because if someone's not selling to you, well, they have no reason to lie. That's just not to say that someone who is selling to you is going to lie to you. But if they don't have an, you know, why would someone lie to me if I'm, if they have no vested interest in, in me or this business I'm working on. But again, you want to go verify and validate the information being told. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes talking to people can be a little bit easier to say than do. But what I will say is that's a muscle that gets better over time. I'm naturally a big introvert. So it takes a lot of energy for me to call up some property manager that I don't know. But over time and doing it, it's a muscle. I mean, we talk a lot about taking at bats and, and getting your at bats in within the academy. It may feel uncomfortable when you do it the first couple of times, but trust me, it's going to get easier. And as far as a return on investment for your uncomfortableness and your time in doing it, a massive return on that time and that uncomfortableness. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember the first time I picked up the phone and called, I was scared out of my pants. Like, why would this person talk to me? They don't know me. I, yeah. I'm just you a guy. You don't want to sound stupid. Yeah. You don't want to sound stupid. Yeah. And so picking up the phone and saying, hey, I'm an asset investor. I wanted to buy property here. Can you help me? Yeah, sure. No problem. Where are you staying? What are you? How long are you in town for? I mean, it just gets so much easier with time and you realize, oh, they're just a person too. Right. And, and most of these people are used to getting cold called. So, it, you, you know, you're probably not going to be the first person. And even if you are, there's your chance to make a good first impression. Emil, how about yourself digging into the neighborhoods? So I don't really have much to add outside of what you guys said. I would just say for anyone who's looking more for some quantitative analysis, uh, if there's a market you're interested in, you can go on our Roofstock blog or just Google like Indianapolis real estate market Roofstock. And at the bottom of each one of these posts, we put out a lot of content to help people figure out what areas are, we use our Roofstock neighborhood score and we create a heat map. So you can kind of see where are the better pockets versus the less so ones on like a quantitative scale. So that's the only thing I would add as a resource for people to check out. And Tom, you mentioned it previously, but can you speak at all to what goes into that neighborhood score algorithm, like the big rocks that go into that? Yeah, the big rocks that go into that is looking at previous economic activity from the last five years, population growth, local size of the economy. It's looking at crime. It's looking at school score. It's looking at some forward-looking projections. And these neighborhood scores are constantly getting updated. So they're updated on a pretty regular basis. But all of those major factors that you would look at in evaluating a market with the economy, with the crime, with the population, those are all going into the output, which is the neighborhood score. 
Awesome. One thing, you, Michael, you touched on it and you mentioned about visiting markets. And this one actually comes up a lot. A lot of people ask, okay, I'm interested in remote real estate investing. I'm thinking about so-and-so market. Should I fly out there and visit it before I invest? So got your take, Michael. Tom, I'm curious to get your, have you ever flown out to the markets that you've invested in? Do you do it before or after? I've done it on some of them, kind of similar to Michael but definitely not all of them. You know, I've passed through Pittsburgh on business quickly, but, you know, I didn't like, wasn't in the area of the property. So doing this a little bit longer, I feel more comfortable doing it, but there's no reason that's a hard requirement of going to the property. I mean, that's what's so cool about this investing. Yeah, I'm with you. I haven't visited any of the markets that I actually invest in, which I want to change that. I don't think it's a hard requirement before you start investing, but I think once you've chosen a market or two that you're really interested in, I think you make you should go out there, visit, you know, get face to face with your team that you've built, your property manager, everyone else. I think it makes a lot of sense. And you know, if it makes you feel more comfortable, do it before, right? If it if it'll help you feel more comfortable, just do it before you go invest too. Yeah. It's a business expense. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Okay. One last thing I want to get to before we wrap this one up. Actually two part question. So what do you guys think the pros and cons are of going the shotgun approach, meaning you invest in a lot of different markets versus maybe choosing one or two markets and going deep there? Yeah, sure. So having done both, I really like the consolidation going deep on a single market approach for a couple of reasons. When you're diversified across numerous different markets, you're just going to have numerous touch points with different personnel, property managers, agents, vendors, and that just gets exhausting at a certain point. And some people really like that kind of grind and the hard work and that feeling of diversification. And that's tough to argue that you are physically and financially well diversified across numerous markets. And so if you're happy to put in the energy and the legwork to manage all of those property managers, by all means, it can be a really great strategy. For me, it just got to be overwhelming with keeping track of when this state's business license filing was due and when I had to renew this thing or that thing. And so I went deep on a, in a particular market. And so from an ownership and operation standpoint, I make one phone call and talk to one person and get all the updates I need. And I can use the same general contractors, same plumbers, same electricians in every job and every property I do. And everything is very cookie cutter. And we've kind of developed systems to say, to make that happen. And that's really tough to do with m- numerous different markets. And every time you go to a new market, you've got to start from scratch. You've got to develop new relationships. You've got to develop new systems, implement new systems if they're already developed, and and develop new relationships. And all of that just takes time. And if you're happy to do that, then by all means, again, it can be a really, really great strategy. But it does take time, energy, and effort. And anyone who says otherwise, I think, is not looking at the full picture. Tom, what do you think, man? I like the idea of spreading out early and then starting to feed into the markets that are performing better or that you have a better partner network. Mm -hmm. Like if I had just done one market, I feel like in the same way of just investing in a single stock and a single equity, I feel like I'm getting exposure to like an, to an ETF that is, you know, a bunch of an aggregate. And like you said there, yes, there's a little bit more work on the front end of establishing those, the property management relationships. Uh, and understanding the different markets. But I like having exposure to a couple of very different markets, you know, like like Atlanta versus Pittsburgh versus Orlando. Cincinnati is something I've been interested in 
kind of a while looking at just the demographics around that. Yes, come, come. <laughs> but I mean, over time, I've started to consolidate more into markets, like I said, that have performed better. But there is a little more overhead. If we had Michael Zuber, he would be very strongly saying, you know, go deep on one market and know your market, know your market, know your market. And that's a great strategy and has been very successful. I like the idea of getting a little bit more exposure and then going deeper, having, you know, seeing all those markets perform. You bring up a really great point, Tom, in that if you are exclusively going deep on one market from the start, you could be ostriching yourself. I guess, you know how ostriches stick their hole, their head in holes? And then they don't mm-hmm. see anything. And so that's all you know, right? Ignorance is, is bliss in that regard. And if that works, great. But I do think that you, you might be doing yourself a disservice by at least not doing a bunch of research on various other markets just to see what they have to offer, if not ultimately investing in numerous. But I, that's interesting. I like that, you know, buying one or two deals in multiple markets and then feeding the market. Feed the beast. Feed the beast. And there's opportunity swings in each market. So if I have exposure, kind of a footprint in multiple markets, I'm way more able to monitor the opportunity swings in the different markets. And when I have capital ready to deploy, I have that many more mouths that I can feed that are hungry. I don't know <laughs> that I can that I yeah. can put in. All right, Emil, flipping this back to you. Man, I being the host on the episode, I, I just have to come in and be like, oh, I agree with you guys. <laughs> I uh, concur. I concur. And that's it. No, I seriously do disagree with both of what you guys said. I like Tom and what you're saying that. Early on, it gives you exposure to a couple markets. You know, you can feel them out for a couple of years, see which one you like the best, which one's performing the best. You know, you, maybe you have a tenant leave. How quickly do you get it rented out? Like, are you in a, in a good spot? And you can start to tell after a couple of years which of those markets you feel like you want to invest more in. So I like that approach too, right? So I'm spread across four markets right now, and I know which markets I want to focus on. It's probably going to be like two markets. And so... At some point, you know, couple next couple of years, we'll, we'll see, probably start consolidating. But I've been able to take a little bit more of a shotgun approach to kind of test out the waters in different markets and now focus in on the ones I like and try to go deep there. So Emil, now that you've got your line in the water, so to speak, on you know a couple of different markets and you've identified where the fish are biting, do you pull your lines out of those other markets and put them in the hot ones or do you leave them out to see what happens? For a fishing analogy. This is such a good question. It's actually something I'm going through right now. So I'm selling one of my properties in one of the markets. And like, I don't know, I could wait, right? I could wait, let the market appreciate, wait five to 10 years. I'm probably after selling it going to break even and I'm okay with that. I'd rather at this point just have less property managers, less vendors to work with and just start going deep. So I'm kind of- Go redeploy that capital. Exactly. Exactly. Plus, you know, I think right now is a, a good buying opportunity. So I'm, I'm okay with breaking even on one and just trying to go find something else in markets I like better. Awesome. All right, Tom, you mentioned you had a question for a super secret. To, secret. Yeah. You were going to ask us before the episode started, but we said, you know what, let's just wait till the end. Keep us on our toes. So the floor is yours. We're doing it live. All right. So this is in the category of getting to know you guys a little bit better inside the head. So I maybe it was on Reddit. I read this somewhere. It it said everyone should have three hobbies. One of their hobbies should make them wealthy. One should make them healthy, and one should make them happy. Now, hmm. what I want to hear from my fellow hosts: What are your three hobbies? And the categories are wealthy, 
healthy, happy. Emil, you go first because we feel bad. Okay. For well, thanks guys. Wealthy, <laughs> wealthy Bitcoin mining at night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, real estate. I mean, come on, we're on a real estate investing podcast right now. Yep. I'm all in on real estate investing. So that's and it's it's just fun. It's interesting. It's something you continually learn, just like other investments. But I think it's good to just choose one and try to get really good at it. So wealthy for real estate investing. Healthy surfing. Surfing is my my preferred hobby exercise, I guess you could call it, right? So that one goes in the health category. I've been surfing for a little over 10 years now. I picked up surfing when I went to UCSD for undergrad. We lived, the school was right by an amazing surf spot called Blacks in San Diego. And so I've been surfing for 10 years. I love surfing. It's like the best thing in the world, but I encourage more people to not do it because yeah, more surfing sucks. Don't water. start. <laughs> don't, don't start. More surfers in the water means less waves for all of us. So it's it's overrated. You don't, you wouldn't like surfing. And then for happy, it's not a hobby. Nah, I'm trying to think of a good hobby for happy. Probably reading. I find so much just joy and inspiration from reading a good book, and I try to read almost every day. So that's probably the big one for me that like is a hobby that keeps me happy. Fiction, nonfiction, all over the place? I'm primarily nonfiction. I read a lot of like investing or business or marketing books for the most part. I've just got to say, I've always been so confused by the term fiction and nonfiction. Like, oh, not fake. So it means it's real. Why don't they just, you know, who, who does this kind of stuff, you know? Sounds like a little Seinfeld bit. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching an episode last night. Maybe subconsciously I was inspired. All right, Tom, what about you, man? Oh, I'm the host. I got to put it on you Oh, okay. I got to go second. All right. So, (laughs) man, Emil, now I know how you feel going, you know, second. So you're allowed to copy one of them. You can only copy one. I can only copy person. one. Oh, Michael man. Michael copies should, everything I do. You're trying to copy two. I can, I can see you trying to copy two of them. Uh, you guys read me like a book. Yeah. I know Emil did. Um, so, yeah. Wealthy going with real estate. That's, that's a no-brainer. For healthy, in a similar vein, but not totally the same, I'm going to go with kite surfing. I'm an avid kite surfer. It's Again, it's similar to surfing. It puts me in my happy place. I can go into the water with problems and come out with solutions without ever really thinking about it, which is kind of nice. And it's just so good for the body. For my happy, okay, this is a new hobby. And invented is the wrong word, but I just discovered it. And I call it dune jumping. And so there are these sand dunes. I live near Pismo Beach and there are these sand dunes. And the wind blows them to make like these massive mountains and these massive dunes. And there's no cars in this area of the dunes. And so what we've started doing is running and jumping off these dunes because the sand that you land in is windblown and it's really soft. It's in these really soft piles. So you literally can't get hurt. So you just feel like you're flying for a couple seconds and then you, because the, the ground literally drops out, you're jumping off this sand cliff and it's just like ear to ear grinning the whole time. It's a lot, a lot of fun. You keep your mouth and eyes closed. So you don't get sand everywhere, but it is a total blast. <laughs> that's awesome awesome all right tom you don't get to copy anyone's well i'm gonna copy the first one i get you kind of copied one and a half i'm gonna give you one and a half but that still works all right so wealthy 
jumping on board real estate. It's fun. It's engaging and it helps make you wealthy. So a, a really awesome one. Healthy. I, so I'd mentioned on an earlier one, I was competing with my friends on minutes working out and right now doing a lot of cycling. So that's kind of my healthy one. And you can kind of zone out when you're going, break a good sweat. Are you I love that. Outside going outside the Peloton? Uh, going outside. I, you know, I wanted a Peloton, but I live in a good area for road biking. So it's like, eh, might as well take advantage of it. So I'm going to count that one as my healthy one. My What's your happy- longest distance, Tom? I've done a done. century before. I've done what? a century. Wow. Yeah. For people really who don't cool. know, that's a hundred miles. <laughs> yeah. The one that I did actually is down in your hood. So it's called the Amtrak 100, where you oh. start in Orange County at the Amtrak station and you ride your bike along the coast and you end up at the San Diego Amtrak station. And then everybody gets on the Amtrak train to ride back up to where they started. And it's like a big party. There's like, you know, beer and champagne. And that's awesome. If you have to do a century, this is probably similar to surfing where like, don't do it because this thing sells out pretty quickly. (laughs) (laughs) The Amtrak 100 is an awesome century. It's one of the only ones I've done and it's super fun. So cool. My last one, Happy, this is kind of a random one. So when I was in college, I was actually a place kicker for UC Berkeley for Cal. And there was a sports psychologist there who got me into meditation And you think as a kicker is like super mental thing. And it statistically made such a big difference. If you look at my career from like starting meditating to not of just a way of kind of quieting the mind, I started getting into that again, post-college, maybe like two or three years ago. And it's kind of California hippie-ish, but it's just a way to kind of quiet the mind. And I would say happy meditation, kind of a California hippie thing, but I love it. It's something that's enjoyable. Tom, I hope this isn't too personal, but I know that you've told me that you've gone to, on some actually silent retreats in the past. I have, yeah. And you know, there's a couple of other great podcasts. 10% Happier is a good one. I have. It's really out of the box. It's like seven days. It's not a cult. There are like some like tinges of Buddhism, but it's definitely not like a religious thing. It's just basically a, a place where they give some instruction. Okay, listen to your breath. Okay, you know, feel the ground underneath you. And it's, it's crazy after a week of this, you just come out just completely. The way I like to frame it is your awareness is about a half a second ahead of the thoughts in your head. So, you know, you can hear your mind actually come up and say something like either, oh, I wish you were doing this or, oh, why why did we say that stupid thing a week ago? Or, you know, like that's, that's a great way of analogy I like to put it is your awareness just gets a little bit ahead of your thoughts. So you can hear your thoughts and not be triggered by them or react to them. But it's a fun, different kind of thing. Interesting. That's awesome. That's rad. All right. So let's wrap it up here, guys. This was an awesome conversation. And I hope everyone who is listening gets a lot of value out of it. I learned a lot from you guys. So thank you personally. And so if you guys enjoyed the episode, make sure you go and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you think we should cover on future episodes. And we'll catch you guys in the next one. Happy investing. Happy investing.